Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Dean Norman. I'm joined by Jerry McCauley. Hello. And James Diamond. Hello. And no Owen Hughes this week. He is missing. Um, he's having a slumber party. I know. He's, ha- he's, <laughs> he's having a boy sleep round. I don't, know what, I don't know what his parents think about it. Um, oh, I bet they're playing truth or dare. I hope they're sleeping in separate beds. But there we go. Not that there's anything wrong with that, Steve. Not or that top, there's anything wrong with that. Or, or top and tail. Anyway. Yeah. On that uh, bombshell. Bombshell. Yeah. Uh, this week is a very hastily arranged uh, Fail Critics podcast. We're a triple bill of our three best performances in bad films. Uh, Studio Ghibli is waiting for its induction to the Corridor of Praise until Owen's back to slag it off. <laughs> Basically. Which is, a, which is a really strange thing for a Corridor of Praise, obviously. But, yeah, I know, but he's still seen more of the films other than Jerry, so we should yeah. probably wait for him. Yeah, plus it makes an interesting debate when it's yeah. me telling everybody how wonderful it is, you know. I don't think he's going to slag it off either. I just don't think he thinks it's as great as Jerry is, which, you know, it's, it's still going to be interesting. Um, just to say, though, today I watched Grave of the Fireflies and it absolutely floored me, and I've got this. I've got a feeling I'm going to be Team Jerry by the time we get round to doing right, Studio well. Ghibli. Yeah. And, uh, so, yes, yeah, so up with some news then, James, before we kick off with what we've been watching and all the rest of it. Um, yes. What news is there? Okay, well, there's the big, uh, the big story in the world of film has uh, Cannes 2013 has finished, and the Palm Door has been given to um, what IMDb are calling lesb- landmark lesbian romance. Uh, blue is the warmest colour, otherwise known as uh, La Vie d'Adela. Um, which there's no blue in that, so clearly that's been changed. I, even I know a bit of French, and I, none of that says blue. But um, French then? Uh, blue is bleu, isn't it, in yeah. French? Yep, <laughs> nice and easy. Um, yes, it's uh, by, uh, directed by Abdelatif Kashiche, I believe it's pronounced. It is as an explicit and epic love story. <laughs> um, it's essentially about a, a young woman who while at university, um, basically discovers that she is a lesbian and has uh, an affair with a fellow 
young person, I believe, student at university, and then it chronicles the, their coming together and I believe their eventual breakup and the disintegration of the relationship. Um, so that all sounds very European and art house, and apparently it has explicit groundbreaking sex scenes. Again, I'm going from IMDb here. But yeah, this is I'm not. This isn't my own filter. Um, and as IMDb says, one of which beats the 10-minute mark, which I didn't realise was a kind of grounds for comparison. I didn't realise that was how an august uh, website like IMDb tended to talk about things. But there you go. It's got... Uh, the rumour is... Well, not the rumour. The reports back from France are that it is quite a a groundbreaking, sensual, lesbian, erotic drama. So catch it as a main review when it eventually gets done for our podcast <laughs> got to be better than Rock of Ages surely um, so yeah that one the Palm Door um, not much else really in the world of cinema films this week apart from the fact that um, Fast and Furious 6 had Universal's biggest ever opening um, uh, for a uh, biggest ever weekend opening for a film which makes me right and Owen wrong that's the only, and because he's not here, I can say that. Mm. So no, no other news. It's going to be a quick podcast. <laughs> it is. Do we, <laughs> don't have anyone make up some news or what? No. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, up next is what we've been watching. So what we've been watching then, and Jerry, why don't you start us off with what you've been watching? Okay, um, this week I have, well, the more I want to talk about is 21 Grams, um, which is from 2003, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and I'm going to, right, even as a Spanish speaker, pronouncing some sort of, some of the South and Central American names where there's... <laughs> there's sort of Indian languages in there it makes it a bit difficult but his name is Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu <coughs> it's um, Iñárritu basically he's known as in, in, in English okay um, it's 10 years old now I have seen it a long time ago but I couldn't remember anything about it uh, yeah I've seen when you said you were going to talk about that one I've seen it a long time ago and all I remember thinking was I I really enjoyed it at the time but I could barely tell you a thing about it yeah um it's it's this it's a sort of it's a strange film it's it's got a very big cast in terms of you know sean penn and naomi watts kind of lead it uh and benicio del toro they're the sort of the three leads and and those three are really really good in this they're very strong it's got you know the supporting cast is pretty good you've got like the likes of eddie marsan uh in a fairly early role for him in hollywood okay. you know it was quite nice his accent mm. dodgy but Um, you know and it reminded me a little bit of Memento in that it the way it tells the story the way the story unfolds is not conventional chronological storytelling so the crux of it is there's um, Sean Penn's character is a a mathematician who is I can't I can't really talk about it too much without giving it away because it's told you get snippets and it jumps forward and back in time 
and you'll see one thing from sort of later on in the chronology and one thing earlier and it jumps between characters and and spaces in time quite a lot and you slowly piece together what's happening um but sean penn's character is ill and um naomi watts's character um i don't want to give it away too much but she's she's having personal issues shall we say of, of various forms and Benicio del Toro is, a, is an ex-convict who has found Jesus and their lives are brought together through um, an accident and it explores how their lives sort of slowly become more intertwined <coughs> and the way the way it plays around with the chronology and the way it's, it's told is actually what makes it more interesting mm-hmm. I think actually when you stop and analyse this film as it is if you played this from point A to point B in a straight normal style, probably not that interesting and engaging a story. It's still interesting, but it, you know it would be mediocre. But the way it's played around with is 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 what makes it interesting. Similar to Memento, you know the tension in Memento is is a lot of it is due to the the fact that the narrative structure is is messed around with. You know if you take the the sort of bare components of that in a in a narrative linear narrative, it's not great, or it's certainly not as good as it was previously. You know. Mm-hmm. in terms of the way it actually unfolds on screen. It's, it's a good film. 21 Grams in the title obviously refers to um, the... I don't know whether it's a bit of an urban legend or a, a myth or whatever. It's, it's probably, if I said this on QI, there would be a big alarm yeah. in the background. But there's a, a thing that you lose 21 grams uh, at the moment of death. Everyone loses 21 grams. And uh, you know there's a theory that that's how much your soul weighs and all this kind of stuff. Fortunately, that isn't really gone into. It's kind of like the thing that ties it together at the end. But they don't really spend a lot of time on that. Which is yeah, it's more of a MacGuffin, isn't it? Yeah, mm. like you say, it, it's it's a bit of an overarching idea. Uh, but yeah, I suppose I suppose death and you know how everyone kind of in the end uh, is, is the same kind of you know is part of the overarching themes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you know, the, the 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 themes that unify us all, no matter who we are. Is that would you say? Is that right? Am I remembering it correctly? Yeah, but I mean, yeah. I think if anything, the the twenty one grams thing is it's kind of one of the criticisms I would have of it is uh, maybe you could make more of that. Mm. There's no sort of foreshadowing, not sort of foreshadowing, but you know sometimes there's a, there's a you say something at the start and you say it at the end, and suddenly mm. when at the start it didn't make much sense, but and at the end it does. Yeah. That didn't quite. It could have worked better like that, but yeah. it's a, it's not a, an easy film to watch. You know, you won't put it on to watch in the background. You have to be paying attention. Mm. Um, but it captures the the randomness of life and the way that different lives sort of knock into each other and overlap, and the massive effects small things in other people's lives can have on your life. Um, and it, yeah, like you said, life and death and the, the sort of interplay between that. There's lots of contrasts and things about being human that are mm-hmm. sort of opposites here that are played with. And it's 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 an interesting, engaging drama. The central performances from the three main characters are very, very good. Very mm-hmm. strong indeed. Although I think I find Sean Penn quite one-dimensional sometimes. Yeah. I think Sean Penn tends to play Sean Penn a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when he 
I mean, he's capable of brilliant, brilliant film, films and brilliant performances. And Milk, for instance, he's absolutely superb in that. Then mm. other times, like this, similar, his character in this, he plays it in a similar way to kind of, you know, he always does Mystic River, all those kind of films. He's, he's good enough, but I think he, they, there could be more from him. But he, he does everything he needs to do to make this mm. character believable. But Del Toro and Watts are absolutely yeah. in this. Brilliant. This was the film that made me really kind of think Naomi Watts is, is actually an actress of incredible talent. She seems to get a lot of flack, Naomi Watts, and I don't know if it's because some of her film choices or something, but actually, more often than not, I've seen her in a film and I've thought she's done really well, and in this, she's fantastic, as is uh, Del Toro. And there's a few, um, I think Melissa Leo and Charlotte Gainsbourg, I've just been having... Now, I've just as you've been talking, I've just been trying to remember it desperately, so I looked it up on IMDb. But I do remember, you know, it's got a really good supporting cast. I, I don't even remember Eddie Marsden being in it, um, but I do remember none, none of the cast ever made me kind of like stop watching for a second. It is a really good ensemble piece. It is. I, I, it's not the best film you're ever going to see, but it's it's better mm. than the vast majority of films you're going to see. Yeah, and well, that's fair. I think. <laughs> You know, it's the the way it's shot as well. I have to comment on how it's brilliantly shot. Some of these, there's some real sort of quiet, solitary moments in it where, you know, you'll have or visit a character, visit a character, visit a character, and then it'll just be 20, 30 seconds of, you know, a city. It's the outline of you know a silhouette of a city and at sunset or as the lights fade in and just a, a massive flock of birds just flying around, mm. and. It, it's it's very good at sort of stopping you in your tracks sometimes when you need to and just forcing you to think about it and then just showing you how sort of random and pointless things are. It's very, very well shot. And I mean, his other work is brilliant. Uh, Morris Peros is absolutely fantastic film. Uh, Babel, I think, was... <sighs> Babel was a frustrating film, if I've mm. seen that. I've not seen that yet, actually. I think... <sighs> 21 Grams is the film that Babel wishes it was. Mm-hmm. I think Babel is trying to do a similar thing and doesn't quite get there. But uh, I haven't seen uh, Beautiful, which is the Javier Bardem one from a couple of years ago. Um, but Amores Peros is, is a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. This was kind of his follow-up to this. Um, he's got a film filming at the moment called Birdman, um, which is actually a bit of a... I think it's going towards the comedy and it's because it's guys, but their casting that is absolutely fantastic. I'll read it. I mean, there's Emma Stone, uh, Ed Norton, Zach Galifianakis, Naomi Watts, Andrea Risborough, uh, Michael Keaton, Amy Ryan. It's a great it's, cast. It's a fantastic yeah. cast, and he seems to do very well at managing casts. I mean, even with Babel, mm. there was you know you had you had Brad Pitt, you mm. had uh, Kate Blanchett, you had. Um, I'm trying to remember who else was in there. I think Gail Garcia Bernal's in there somewhere. Um, there was there was a real mix in that, and I think that was a bit too ambitious. Whereas when he gets it right, and he he seems to attract really good actors in the other two, you know, they really seem to want to work with him. Um, and you know, Bardem with Beautiful again, he's very very good at getting top acting talent and getting a real sort of international mix as well. You know, which is very nice because it's not like your standard Hollywood film where everyone, mm. like, everyone is, um, you know, American, whatever. He's he's very good at, at mixing those things, and I think 
this film is probably not as good as Amores Peros, but it's much better than Babel. Mm. And I don't want to sound too condescending, but it's the kind of film that should be made more, if you know what I mean. I don't yeah. be a snob and say, you know, blockbusters. I enjoyed Fast and the Furious 6, for example. I really enjoyed that yeah. kind of film. But you need more of these kind of films being made in the mainstream, you know, thought-provoking, quite contemplative, but with real sort of power and, and um, explosive scenes. You know, it's not just a, mm. it's not a quiet, talkable, talky film. There's, there's some action in it. It's, it's quite visceral at times. And it's it's really the kind of film that I would like to see more more of them made. Mm. But very good, very good. I would I would recommend it. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, like I haven't, it's it's worth a rewatch because the, the crazy chronology on its own is enough to just keep you engaged. Even if you can remember the story, you start sort of. Once I started piecing together what was what was going to happen, out of memory and out of what you know what I could gather from the story. It became interesting to to see how the narrative was going to be told then, and where things were going to be revealed, and what the tension, you know, where the tension was going to occur in the story. So it, it's a good film. It's a very good film. Excellent, James. What have you watched this week? Um, well, I've spent most of my week trying to get through the new season of Arrested Development, but I've promised to hold off talking about that until Owen's back. Um, so I'm going to talk about a film that I've watched for the first time for our decade in cinema. Uh, pieces. It's fil- so it's a film from 1963 because I'm doing the 60s, um, and it's a film I've been meaning to watch for a little while called Billy Liar. Um, I've, I kind of know it more by reputation than anything else. I know the title. Um, it's directed by John uh, Schlesinger, who actually won an Oscar for Midnight Cowboy in the 70s. Also directed Marathon Man as well. But this is a film um, that's one of the real classic British. Kin- kitchen sink dramas or you know part of the british new wave of the 1960s have you read the Um, the book james i haven't no um but yeah i know it's based on a novel by keith waterstone which was turned into a play which was then turned into a film pardon keith waterhouse waterhouse story yeah um, because you said book and then i thought booksellers yeah (laughs) yes is the book good then yeah it's It's a bit similar to Kes, and I think the film will probably come across as a bit similar to Kes. Do you know what I mean? It's of that ilk. Yeah, well, I would say the film was funnier than I thought it would be, actually. Um, it is, you know, it is very much of the British New Wave, um, which ironically helped, you know, although it's very much of its time, it, it felt a lot fresher and a lot less dated than I imagined it would do. Um, so it's got a real cinema verite feel. Um, it uses real locations. Um, I think it was filmed in Bradford. Um, it uses a swear word. Uh, at some point, someone says "pissed," um, which back then for a British film was actually quite a big deal. Um, so, in that sense, it's it's a very realistic, um, well acted, um, well shot film. Uh, just to give you an idea, basically Billy Fisher, played by uh, Tom Courtenay, is a young clerk, works in a provincial northern town, um, and basically he daydreams of being somewhere, basically anywhere else. Uh, and the film takes place over a rough 24-hour period, which we spend with him is his life begins rapidly unravelling. His employer, who is a funeral director played uh, by Leonard Rossiter, I seem to be seeing lots of films recently with Leonard Rossiter in, and that's a good thing. Um, 
he's uncovered some petty fraud by Billy. Basically, Billy was meant to send out um, a load of calendars to customers, and he didn't send out the calendars. He pocketed the postage money, and he's, you know, there's a kind of farcical scenes where he's trying to hide this wardrobe full of calendars that he's got in his bedroom that he lives in his parents' house and then at some point he's trying to get rid of them at work by flushing them down the toilet a bit at a time um, and it's these moments of levity which actually really work quite nicely um, he's struggling um, to remain engaged to two different women two very different styles of women it, part of it feels a little bit carry on in places but it's grounded enough so that you don't ever kind of like lose focus. You don't ever feel pulled out of the picture. Um, he's in love with a third woman uh, called Liz, who's played by, in this, the wonderful Julie Christian. Actually, watching one of these films, for a young person like me, I know you take the piss out of how old I am, but seeing these great actors that I've only ever seen kind of as older, 50, 60, 70-year-old people... It's really refreshing to see them in their youth and actually realise how they became famous. Um, and this is a case here. I've never seen Tom Courtney in anything when he's not been an old man. And seeing him as the young Billy Lark, he's absolutely fantastic in this. Because um, what you've got here is a character who is stealing from his employers, um, stringing along two women being a bit of a dick around his parents who you know, he's living with, he could be a really unlikable character. He should be quite an unlikable character, but he gets away with it because he's got this great charm, he's got a cheeky grin, and he also just personifies this, um, this daydreaming quality. You know, he's charming enough to get us to warm to him, and... Every mistake that he makes, every kind of hole that he digs for himself, and he keeps digging because he'll tell a small lie and then have to cover it with a bigger lie and then a bigger lie. And that kind of almost that traditional British sitcom style. Um, each, each of those lies isn't out of malice or out of some cynical, conniving nature. It's a, it's a childish, innocent selfishness. He just wants to live in a better world. So he dreams of writing scripts and of going to London. So he tells everyone that he's got a job working in London as a scriptwriter for a famous comedian who happens to be in town that day opening a supermarket. Um, and he has sent the scripts, but he's not heard back. Uh, and it's, you know, so he, he builds lies upon... He, builds up his part to be bigger than he is and he just wants to get out of this town um very very funny and a lot of the humor actually comes from billy's daydreams which again when you consider you're watching a black and white film from the 1960s filmed in britain some of the sequences are quite shocking um there's a moment where his dad's having a go at him and he just imagines machine gunning his family to death. And it's actually quite a light mode. But it comes out of nowhere. And it's really well shot. Um, and the main daydreams. He daydreams about this land called Ambrosia. Where he is king of this land. And he just kind of. He withdraws into this daydream world. And um, the only person who can kind of even get through to him a tiny bit. Is Liz. Who quite often leaves this town to go and have adventures and she only comes back when she needs to come back she's the only one who understands him and you've got this mystery at, uh, at the heart of it which is can he finally leave this town and run off with liz 
or will he stay and uh, go further into his shell? And it's it's a wonderful film. I really really enjoyed this film. It's definitely going to be in my decades list. Um, very funny, and uh, actually. Like I say, it feels fresh. It doesn't feel dated at all. Well, I've seen a lot of films. Like a kind of person, don't they? Do you know what I mean? Always, Pardon, sorry. Everybody knows a kind of a Billy yeah. kind of person. There was always that lad at school who, you know, used to make up shite about. Yeah. Yeah, my dad did this, and oh yeah, I was walking home the other day and I found a hundred quid. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And and then there's other bits of it which I'll be honest, I I kind of sympathised and seen. I had seen him. You know that. That wanting to get out of somewhere, that wanting to get out of a small provincial town. You know, I'm, I live in the metropolis of Leicester now, so I've obviously made was, good on that. Was it shot in Bradford? This? It was shot in Bradford, yeah. And there's a little bit up on uh, up on the hills around Bradford, but um, it it's in a way it's really nice because bits of it just capture British life as it was then, um, uh, because you. They did just film on location, so it wasn't like, say, the Ealing comedies of the 40s and 50s on big sound stages with very clipped accents and actorly actors, and I love the Ealing comedies. Um, But this actually feels almost like a document of Britain in the 1960s, just as it was starting to change. Um, We were just getting past those post-war years, and that sense also kind of permeates... Um, Billy Fisher's imagination the fact is he's of that first generation that could go out and just strike out on their own and make something of themselves that didn't have to follow in their father's footsteps but he needs the gumption to take that step himself he's he's a frustrating character but you want to spend that time with him and a lot of that is down to uh, Tom Courtney's brilliant performance, it's interesting he was the understudy for Albert Finney in the West End run but um, I can't imagine, I'll be honest, I can't even imagine a young Albert Finney doing the role as it's done in this film because it's um, I, it, it's the kind of archetypal cheeky chappy but with a heart of vulnerability. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I had to get it on um, by disc from Love Film. I don't, I don't think it's available to stream anywhere, but it's worth keeping an eye out for if it's on TV or if you see it cheap in a charity shop or something like that. Okay, um, well, I have not watched any films in this last week. I've been, so, what I have watched is a lot of Frasier, which naturally carried on after I finished watching Cheers. As for those who don't know, Frasier was a character in Cheers, and he got his own spin-off show. And it was, let's be fair... Did, sorry, Steve, did you get to the end of Cheers? Did you watch all of Cheers I watched then? all of Cheers. Oh, it okay, yeah. Bloody brilliant. Yeah, I'd probably rather talk about Cheers than Frasier, but anyway. <laughs> yes, Frasier. Because Frasier's a re- weird one, isn't it? Because it's the, the spin-off that did probably just as well, maybe even yeah. better commercially. Certainly no Joey. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly no The Cleveland Show. Oh dear, yeah. Um, yes, so Frasier... <clears throat> I think everyone knows her. I don't really need to describe Frasier to anyone, do I? Probably. Go on, just in case. Just in okay, case. Okay, so Frasier was a character in Cheers. He was a psychiatrist, uh, and Cheers was set in Boston. When Cheers finished, he moved to Seattle to start a radio psychiatry show, uh, and he moves in with his dad, who was a policeman who got shot, um, and his English physiotherapist, who moves in with them, 
and his brother Niles doesn't live with them, but he's pretty much always there. And it is probably one of the funniest sitcoms I've seen. It's definitely in the top five. Um, wow. I think I think it suffers because people think because of the character of Frasier is quite intelligent and quite snobbish. They think that that's the kind of humour it's going to be, and it's not really. But I think people just assume it's that kind of character, mm. and a lot of the jokes, a lot of the humour is going to go over their head. But but yeah, no, no, I because I, I, I always got that impression before. I think when I started watching it when I was like twelve, thirteen, or something like that, I got that impression because it felt like a grown-up show. But no, no, you're def- exactly right. Definitely it's... a grown-up sitcom I know it's mm. on at like 10 o'clock in the morning on channel 4 but it's definitely aimed at adults it's not a family sitcom you know it's not loads of swearing or no. anything like that but it's oh, no. definitely it's aimed classier than that yeah, yeah. It's, de- it's definitely aimed at adults rather than kids or families or whatever but it's you know it's not highbrow despite the character the, mm. the main characters being highbrow no because you're encouraged to laugh like, uh, 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 you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because it is a long time since I've seen it. But my recollection is, Frasier is usually the butt of the jokes. Yeah, most yeah. of the time. And you're, you're almost always on uh, Marty's side in any kind yeah, of you've conflict. Got, you've got his dad, Marty, or Daphne, or Roz, who are all kind of work yeah. class, more normal people who are all central to the plot. So, um, but I'm just up to season four of that, about halfway through on Netflix. Um, Have you seen the Christmas episode? I saw that that was on TV the other week. I which, ended up watching it. The, the Christmas episode where he's trying to get a, a present for his son. Um, it's quite touching with the terms of what he, what his dad gets and stuff. But he's in, yeah. like, he's in the shop and the guy's like, you really need this, huh? And you think it's going to be a yeah. touching moment. And then he's like, yeah, $700. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I remember... I got my father-in-law a DVD of all the Christmas... For some reason, they released a DVD with every Christmas episode of Frasier on the same DVD. He he very much enjoyed that. So I, I've not seen it for a long time, but there's a few shows I've seen on Netflix recently that I watched when I was younger, never complete, never watched every single one of them, and I've, I've got that hankering to do what you're up to, Steve. Mm. To be um, honest, I've never watched Cheers, so I don't think I've seen a single episode of Cheers. Cheers is great. Cheers is amazing. I'm, mm. Seriously, it is one of the funniest programs I've ever watched. Every character is excellent. There, there is no wasted main character in it. Um, and there, you know, there's great performances from everybody. I don't get so many inconsistencies with, with Frasier and the same character played in Cheers and in Frasier. Uh, mm. Like, he explains the fact that he told everyone in Cheers that his dad was dead, and he explains that in it. But it's like his dad is quite working class and likes sports, whereas Frasier doesn't. But in Cheers, Frasier quite clearly watches sports and understands sports. Mm. It's just little things like that. It's been a bit, a bit tighter with the writing and the continuity. But um, but the star of the show probably isn't Frasier for me. It's the, um, his brother Niles. Yeah, I think Not, yeah. I think he steals it every time he's on. He's he's fantastic from his from just sort of the way he is as a person to his kind of infatuation with Daphne. Yeah. Also, the fact that he's called Niles, as in 
the River Nile with an S on the end. What the hell is that? That's not a name. <laughs> you should see what some of the some parents are calling their kids now. Well, I know. I know. Nile is normal compared to some of the <laughs> shite that comes out. One of my favourite things about Frasier, by the way, is um, obviously, as ever, bring it back to The Simpsons. Because um, Kelsey <laughs> Grammer, uh, obviously, is side to a bob. Yeah. But um, the guy who plays Niles, whose name escapes me, plays... David Hyde Pierce. He plays Sideshow Bob's brother, Cecil. Yeah. And then Frasier's dad, again, I can't remember the name of him, plays their dad in an episode of The Simpsons as well. But that, 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 that's those... when The Simpsons turns into a farce when his dad turns up. Is... <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah. Um, yeah, Sideshow Bob, um, uh, just to say, uh, the one where they, uh, The Simpsons get uh, going to witness protection at Cape Fear is my favourite. That Simpsons episode. My, my favourite Simpsons one was on telly today. It was on Sky Sky One. Which one's that? Homer at the Bat. Oh, that's a nice classic that, episode. That, that. Yeah. absolute brilliant. Everything about proper classic episode. Simpsons. Yeah. Simpsons doesn't exist for me past about 1998. It just didn't happen. Yeah, sensible. Mm. Um, so yes, watch Frasier. It's on Channel Four every morning, like three episodes. Or if you've got Netflix, it's on there as well. Excellent. Yes. Uh, so we're going to have a break, and then we'll be back with our hastily arranged triple bill. Right, triple bill. We haven't done one for a while, have we? Can't remember what the uh, last one was. I can't remember what the last one was <laughs> It was... Uh, no, no, I'm not even going to try and remember. Anyway, yeah, I think we're back. have a hastily arranged one as well. Yes, it was. Um, was it? Oh, it was the sub. Um, it was the short films. You know what I mean? It, yeah, films under eighty minutes. Yeah, that was it. That that was hastily arranged as well. Probably because we'd postponed Studio Ghibli again. It will happen. It, yes, it will. This, it definitely. Will. This week's uh, triple bill is good performances in otherwise bad films. Yes. And I'm going to actually first. Did we get? We got quite a few suggestions, didn't we? From we did get some suggestions, actually, um, but I'm going to leave those to the end, just in case they kind of clash with a few of ours. That's all I'm saying, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Okay, well, I'll kick us off. Uh, I'm going to start off with um, Big Willie star, Will Smith, in I Am Legend, because he is fantastic in I Am Legend as Robert Neville, the scientist who's trying to save the world from basically coming to an end. Um, with are they zombies or vampires or a bit of both? The the vampires aren't they? Yeah, humans. Anyway, he's trying to save the world from them, and he thinks he's the only man alive. Um, he's really good in it, playing kind of just a man on his own. You know, he's he's basically acting with himself and occasionally a dog. Um, but he's let down by a script that changes the the premise of the book. And if they had stuck to the premise of the book, they probably would have had a, like a really decent summer blockbuster with Will Smith in it on their hands. Mm-hmm. But they changed they changed the the book the ending from the book ending, and just made it dumb. Yeah, I've still not seen it. I, I keep meaning to, and I've got um, I've got the very very original one that Owens talked about for the uh, the Vincent Price. I've watched one. the um. 
Amiga Man. Yeah. Charlton Heston. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched Amiga Man, which was really good, actually. Mm. Um, yeah. And and, no, and you could have seen with Will, Will Smith in it, this one, if they'd stuck to how the script, how the story should pan out, then mm-hmm. you could see this one being on kind of a par with Amiga Man. But they just, whoever decided to write a script, would go, no, we're going to change the ending of a book. It's a really good book, and everyone likes the book. And they've made some films about the book, and they've been quite successful. We're going to do something different with it. It's going to be really stupid. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it was a really, really long development on that film. I've been reading about it in the uh, David Hughes book, The Greatest Sci-Fi Films Never Made, talking about like all the different like choices. And at one point, Arnie was signed up to play the lead in that as some kind of mild-mannered scientist in his own inimitable way. Uh, and my second and third film are kind of cheating. Well, they're not cheating, but, you know, it kind of encompasses four films, although one of which I've not seen. And it's Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Crossover. I was going to say that, but I did like the first one, and I, I've not really watched any of the I, I think the, I think the first one was quite good. You know, is it like a blockbuster action adventure film? Mm. Two and three, I've not seen four. Two and three were ropey, stupid, overly complex plots carried by Johnny Depp putting in an amazing performance as this eccentric mental pirate captain. Um, Jerry can join. Yeah, he's by far the best thing in it. Yeah, he is, he is by far and away the best thing in it, and he is just phenomenal. Although, in a, in a movie that features Orlando Bloom as a central part of the acting cast. Yes. He's always so, going to stand out. The, the, the most wooden thing in the films aren't the ships. <laughs> Nicely done, oh. sir. I, I do remember thinking um, Jeffrey Rush was good, actually, as the bad guy in the first one, because Jeffrey Rush is a proper actor. Um, the first one was quite good, but then they tended to get over overcomplicated with the plots in the second two. Mm. That's uh, the second and third one. I and think I've seen the looked, second one in the background, but I, the third I one watched, just looked awful. I never. Yeah, I watched the first half hour, like one Christmas on BBC of the second one. I thought I can't be asked with this. It really bored me. So, yeah, no, but but I'm sure Johnny Depp did his thing in those films. So I think that's a perfectly legitimate. If if, play. if, if someone else was playing that character. Matthew Modine, for example, <laughs> yeah. then, then it would have just absolutely bombed. <laughs> so, uh, more on Matthew Modine later on in this podcast. Hey. More, he must be claiming royalties off of us by now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Jerry, as we've had a bit of crossover, do you want to carry on? Haven't you got another one? No, because I was just chucking in like a couple of them as to, um, oh, uh, to fill up my list. Oh. <laughs> Ever the professional. Um, Efficient. Right. <laughs> <laughs> shambolic. Well, obviously, I went for depth in Pirates of the Caribbean, but I can only really speak for the first one on that one. Another one might be a bit controversial here. Um, Alan Rickman in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. See, I, I saw that on a list that I googled, and I was like, but I love Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think it's one of those films where, as a kid, it was really good. Yeah. And when I watched it again as an adult, I was like, oh my god, this is awful. Is it really? I, I've not seen it in years. Yeah, I just... Oh, I'm upset now. It was a bit all over the show. 
Yeah. A bit weird. Mm. I mean, it's got some quite interesting things to say about sort of the morality of that time, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. But, yeah, but I think the best thing I can say... Uh, is is it, to you to quote is is to quote Roger Ebert on this. Mm. Um, he says um, the most colourful character is the villain, the sheriff of Nottingham. But both the character and the performance are inappropriate for this film. <laughs> 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 and he says um, he's wicked. He's a wicked, droll, sly, witty master of the put down and one liners who rolls his eyes in exasperation when Robin comes bursting in to interrupt the rape. Rickman's performance has nothing to do with anything else in the movie and indeed seems to proceed from a uniquely personal set of assumptions about what century, universe, etc. the story is set in. But at least when Rickman <laughs> appears on the screen, we perk up because we know we'll be entertained at whatever cost to the story. <laughs> oh, bless Eva. Yeah, now Rickman is just proper English villain in that film, um, which is great. Now, I, I do remember... There's not a huge amount of chemistry between Costner and whoever played Maid Marian. Um, I remember Morgan Freeman's. That's just a weird character they've got going on there yeah, with the Moore. Yeah. Morgan Freeman's Moore. Weird. Yeah, uh, Christian Slater's uppity little. Yeah, no, I can probably. Um, yeah, I, the more I think about it, the more I think, yeah, it's probably not as good as I thought it was. But Rickman is absolutely superb in this. He is yeah. so over the top, but so brilliant. Yeah, And he's actually, he's probably one of the best villain performances of all time, I would say. Yeah. Oh, he's one of my favourite. Yeah, definitely one of my favourite screen villains. I'm not sure it, actually, I'm not sure whether I prefer this or his Die Hard performance. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I think Prince of Thieves is more entertaining. It's just Hans Gruber's in a much better film. Yeah, it's Sheriff of Nottingham is probably the better performance, but that yeah. one is by far the better film. Yeah. It's just a ludicrous film. Um, and if, you, if, like me, you haven't watched it for a number of years, go back and watch it and you'll yeah. realise. Although you might not want to because it might shatter your childhood illusions. There's, there's certain films that you don't want to watch as an adult because you know they're going to be shit, really. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm middle-aged enough now to not care that it. Yeah, maybe I can actually listen to that Brian Adams song finally, after years of shunning it. Don't push it. <laughs> <laughs> My final choice um, forward. Try and update things slightly. Um, is Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, I've not seen this yet, but I've seen that on a few lists when I was doing my research. Well, I've got a confession to make here. I turned the Iron Lady off. Yeah. Because, well, one, she wasn't suffering enough for my liking. I mean, it, I know it's a tale of watching an old woman, you know, suffer with dementia and mm. be haunted by the fact that her husband's died, but she was not suffering anywhere near enough for me for my liking. It needed to be much closer to the Saw films for me to enjoy a cinematic portrayal <laughs> of Thatcher. But um, Meryl Streep was pretty good at it to the extent that I disliked the film enough to turn it off because she was reminding me too much of actual Margaret Thatcher and I didn't want, you know... It was the fact that they were trying to make it sympathetic to her and just thought, no, bollocks. And for me, to yeah. turn the film off that stars Olivia Colman is, is a strong thing. So Yeah, and because I've heard she's also very, very good in it as well. Um, I think my... Because I've still not watched it because I, I, I am of a... I am of 
similar political sympathies to you, Jerry. And, um, yeah, everything I read about it was not necessarily that it was... Well, it's, it's not even the fact that it was uh, it was pro what she did. Okay. It was the fact that it kind of willfully only presented one side and tried to ignore the controversy and kind of built up the fact that, look, isn't it amazing that a woman became prime minister and isn't that amazing and not actually didn't actually analyze her 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 reign uh, yeah the, and the i think for a film well. that is is looking at her in her later years mm. the lack of examination of the legacy was mm. uh, very disagreeable shall we say yeah but she's i mean meryl streep's pretty good in this it's probably not her best performance but it's meryl streep so by anybody else's standards it's always going to be professional yeah yeah. and by anybody else's standards this would be a career-defining performance so actually because it's meryl streep it's just another good meryl streep performance if you know what i mean she's very good unfortunately she was not good enough to make me want to keep watching the film but there you go (laughs) james your choices okay yeah that might i ummed and ahed, even though this was hastily arranged, I, I made my notes and everything like that um, at one at one point I was just going to pick three Nick Cage performances um, because I think every other one of his performances is a great performance in a bad film but I decided no, I'm going to leave Nick Cage out of this and I also thought I'm only going to concentrate on films that I thought were genuinely pretty bad rather than ones that other people might have seen something in that I didn't like. So, for example, I left out Tom Hardy and Bronson because a lot of people... I I think there's more to Bronson than... He's the best thing in Bronson, but I think there is still some more to it than just him. Uh, same with uh, John Goodman in Flight and Dowd in Compliance and uh, uh, the, the leads in Beasts of the Southern Wild. So uh, I've gone for three films that I've actually seen in the last year. Um, because my memory's fading now, so I've had to focus on what I've seen the last year. So I'm going to start off with a film actually from this year. Um, it was the surprise film at Glasgow Film Festival, and I went to see it with our good friend Dave McFarlane from our, our sister podcast, Born Offside. Um, Spring Breakers and James Franco as Alien. One of the the best things about this performance was I didn't realise it was James Franco until the next day when I went home and I was writing up my review and I thought, oh, who played that rapper? Whoa, it was James Franco. Did did not get it at all because I went into the film not knowing anything about it being the surprise film. Um, You kind of see him performing at the start, but basically he plays a a rapper stroke drug dealer stroke criminal uh, in this film. Spring Break is about four young women who go off to spring break and it goes they go on a bit of a crime spree and one of them is Selena Gomez and another one is um, Vanessa Hudgens so uh, directed by Harmony Queen terrible, terrible film it's like a 90 minute weird wet dream sequence Um, feels like three hours Um, and Franco is the one bright spark in this film Uh, he plays a kind of cross between Gary Oldman's Drexel in True Romance and um, Crazy Eyes Killer from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, in fact, there is a scene pretty much stolen from Curb Your Enthusiasm in here, where he's talking about having Scar. He's in his bedroom talking about having Scarface playing 24/7 on one of the TVs. And he just keeps saying, "Look at all my shit," and it, 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 he's like, 
he provides some comic relief in an otherwise completely soulless and heartless film. Uh, and there's one scene in particular where he's just sat at his poolside piano with his biatches around him and he starts tinkling the ivories and then just sings a Britney Spears song just for the damn hell of it. He was the only bit that made me laugh in the film. Uh, and even now, sometimes, hated the film. I'm sure I never want to watch it again, but part of me kind of does to see was it as bad as I thought I was. But I'll just be walking down the street and in my head, hearing him going, Spring Break forever, bitches! Yeah, he's, he is the only good thing about that film. So that's my first one. Um, my second one is Paul Bettany as Michael in Legion. Have either of you seen Legion? No. No, don't. Okay, 2010 film, directed by Scott Stewart, who went on to do Priest, which also starred Paul Bettany, and recently did Dark Skies, which was, uh, I think Owen went to see it, Makers of Insidious. But I like Paul Bettany a lot, and it really hurts me, actually, that he's got to do so much crap these days. Never really made that breakthrough, because he was... Um, he, I first saw him in A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, and he played Chaucer in that. I thought, absolutely brilliant, very funny, uh, very fresh, you know, talent. Uh, and he's had kind of bit parts uh, or secondary roles in other... He was in A Beautiful Mind. Um, yeah, he's fantastic in A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World as well. Very, very good in that. Um, but he never really made it up to leading man status he did star in Wimbledon the terrible rom-com with uh, with him as a failed British tennis player with Kirsten Dunst that's not good uh, that's not the performance I'm going for though it's, it's Legion in which he plays a fallen archangel called Michael who is mankind's last hope as God decides to bring about the apocalypse because he's had enough of us uh, but he goes against God's orders and him and a bunch of misfit humans make their last stand in a remote diner in uh, somewhere in the deep south of America. Ridiculous special effects. Some old granny who then launches onto a ceiling and starts attacking people. Uh, terrible fight scenes. And a plot that actually starts quite interestingly, but then ends up taking itself far too seriously, getting itself twisted in knots. It's one of the worst films I've seen of the last year. But throughout all that, Paul Bettany, as the kind of tattooed um, fallen angel who is determined to make up for past misdeeds, is, again, as I said, he's the one bright spot in this film. And this film re features uh, one of the Dennis Quaid. There you go. Not a good film. Um, and then finally, uh, Susan Sarandon. Who, I'm, again, big fan of Susan Sarandon. As Sarah Roberts in The Hunger. Now, it's from 1983, directed by Tony Scott. I saw this at Bowie Fest last year. And despite the fact that it's a Tony Scott film, despite the fact it's got David Bowie in, it was definitely the weakest film of the festival. Um, Catherine Deneuve plays an Egyptian vampire called Miriam. Uh, who lives in Manhattan and who subsists on the blood of her lovers who never age until she gets bored of them and then their days are numbered pretty damn quickly. And this happens to her husband, John, who's played by Bowie. She starts getting bored of him, so he just terrifyingly ages over a day. It's quite, that's one of the good scenes of the film, is when he's, he goes to a hospital to look for this famous doctor 
played by Susan Sarandon, who can help. Uh, she's you know working in the fight against aging, and he goes there to try and get help. She sees him too late, and um, she starts inquiring after this man who aged in a day, and gets drawn into Catherine Deneuve's weird lesbian vampirical trap. Um, it's utterly schlocky, terrible, terrible plot. Um, you don't even really see that much of what would make Tony Scott a great action director. But through all of this, Susan Sarandon plays the innocence really well. She plays the turn to the potential dark side really well. And watching her performance in this is like watching someone... You know, when you watch those films of er, you know, those early performances of people that you know become stars and you can tell actually they're going to be... You, know, you can see why they became good. This is one of those performances. So that's my last one. Okay. Uh, so what what are the other choices then that people told us about? So other ones, yeah, other ones we had. Well, um, uh, Dave uh, Dave McFarlane actually he sent in his three, and one of his was James Franco in Spring Breakers because he had exactly the same experience I did. Um, for Dave to have submitted three films, that's an achievement in itself. Yeah, I know. Uh, not one of them. Not one of them is like um, Good Girls Gone Bad or anything like that as well. It's you know three actual theatrical release films. Um, Tom Cruise in Rock of Ages, which was on my shortlist, but I felt we'd spoken about that far too much. I just, I just uh, didn't want to publicise the film anymore. But yeah, I do, yeah. I do agree. He was a shining light in an absolute dismal film. Yeah, if they and, a film um, completely about him. It, yeah, it could, we might have had a half de- and removed all the singing. Might have had a half yeah. decent film there. Um, I feel the same about Les Mis though if he'd made about it all about Tom Cruise and take away all the singing it would have been great was Tom Cruise in Les Mis? <laughs> well confused no but you know if they had should yeah yeah no oh, I can see that um, he also went for Raul Julia in Street Fighter as well um, Matt Lamborn uh, the site's very own Matt Lamborn went for Christopher Lambert in Mortal Kombat although isn't that just someone being not as shit as everyone else in a terrible film I'm, I'm not sure um, uh, John the Journo, uh, who's also written for us before, John Fitz, he quite liked George Clooney as Batman, but I, I've got to say I think it's it's Arnie in Batman and Robin that is. I was going to say the standout performer there. Contender um, on my list. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. And then um, uh, Jackson Tyler, uh, who is um, at Tyler A zero zero two why you'd have that as your username on Twitter. But anyway, he says uh, William Fitchner in Drive Angry, and I think William Fitchner's a great actor. Uh, Ewan McGregor in Star Wars prequels. Ricardo Montalban, uh, Khan himself, in Spy Kids 3. And then this one's quite controversial. Lance Henriksen in Aliens. Get the fuck out. Get one dickhead, isn't there? Just have to ruin it for everyone. I bet he threw that on the end there, and he's not even being serious. He's just trying to annoy people. He threw it on the end and hashtagged it, yup. So, yeah, I'm I'm calling him out here. He's done that on purpose to try and wind people up. We're not wound up. We've caught you out, so joke's on you, mate. Maybe he knew Owen wasn't going to be on, and he knew Owen wasn't going to troll us by saying Harrison Ford in Star Wars. So he was like, right, someone's going to wind him up. 
Oh, God, oh, yeah, I can't even begin to go into how many different ways that's wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's... Thank you, everyone, for getting those in. Um, yeah, that, that's... I think that went quite well, considering we only came up with it. Thanks to Jerry as well. Jerry's idea this afternoon. Well, well done. About time you started contributing. Yeah, that's my <laughs> ideas for like the year, really. Don't don't start getting your hopes up. This is it now. That's that's my contribution. <laughs> uh yeah, so we'll be back in a little moment, um with a little bit of a look ahead to what films are on telly this week and what you can expect from the website in the upcoming period. So we've got some recommendations then for the coming week in film. I've got one. It is on Friday afternoon, or Friday evening, I should say. It starts at 8.40 on film four. And it is Cutthroat Island, star <laughs> Matthew Modine and Gina Davies. Now, I've reviewed this as one of the biggest, well, it is the biggest box office flop of all time. I reviewed this on the podcast and the site. Um, and it, yes, uh, it, it, watch it just to see how bad it is. I'd record it so you can fast forward for all the adverts, but you know, definitely watch it just, just to see how bad it is. I, I'm definitely going to do that now because I know how difficult it was for you to track down a copy yeah, of that. Oh, and now it turns up on bloody film. And that just turns up on telly. <laughs> So yes, watch that. It will be so bad. It's bad. It sounds like an experience. It sounds like one of those. That you it just, it's just one of those films you have to have seen. Yeah, yeah. Good set design though. So, uh, Jerry, what are you recommending for people? Um, I am going to recommend a film called Lime Life. Um, which is from 2008. It's on BBC Two on sort of Friday night slash Saturday morning, if you know what I mean, ten past midnight. Um, so technically it's Saturday, but really it's Friday night. Um, it's set in sort of rural US. I can't remember where exactly in the 70s, um, and it's a small community, and someone contracts Lyme disease, and it's about how the community reacts to that, and, and focused around a couple of families in particular and their reactions to it, and and how their behaviour changes, and then sort of family secrets slowly unravelling as a result of this. Uh, it's got Rory Culkin, who's Macaulay Culkin's brother. Um, it's also got Kieran Culkin in as well. The two of them, um, and they play brothers in this, and they, they work quite well. It's got Alec Baldwin in. Uh, some people like Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's great. Yeah, I'm not going to praise him too much, because some people fucking hate Alec Baldwin. Who who hates Alec Baldwin? Well, the Team America World Police proved pretty... They... Oh, yeah, I suppose that's a little bit around his... Uh, yeah, although they had George Clooney and Matt Damon in there as well. No, I know you hate George Clooney. But no, I, th- I thought, especially since 30 Rock kind of resurrected his career, I thought we all agreed that Alec Baldwin was a national treasure. He's a bit of an arse, let's be honest. Everybody knows he's a bit of an arse. Oh, yeah, but I mean, on screen, as an actor... I, I always enjoy his performances. Sometimes he's always. a bit smug for my liking, but anyway, he's, okay. he's, I don't get why. He seems to divide people. Okay, I, I didn't realise that. Mm. That's the whole, oh, you've opened my eyes to a whole new 
subculture of people who don't like Alec Baldwin. Well, I'm just kind of in the middle sometimes. Every day's a school day. Yeah. Um, Cynthia Nixon's in it as well. Who's, um, she's pretty good. Actually, she, she can do some real serious acting when she wants to. Um, <laughs> unfortunately for her, this is, it's not a big role, really. Mm. But um, unfortunately for her, she's known for Sex in the City. Yeah. She's known as the lesbian one from Sex in the City. Uh, yeah. And pretty much that's it. Yeah. yeah but she's, she's pretty good in this. It's, it's a, a fairly good film. I ended up seeing it as a free preview when it came out. Um, there's a real innocence around it because it's, it's seen through the eyes of a 15-year-old boy. So it's quite nice. You know, the kind of whole Spielberg 80s, 70s ethos of making films about rural America, that kind of, it, it, it's quite, actually, do you know what it, it reminds me of, James? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, everyone's favourite Aubrey Plaza film. Yes. Oh, okay, now I'm in. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, safe not guaranteed. Indeed. Okay. Oh, now I'm in. Because up until then, you were kind of like, yeah, it's quite nice. It's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. But, yeah, if it's if it's, if it's it's got the same kind of feel as safe, not guaranteed, I'm in. Yeah, it's kind of rural America. It's, you know, the woods are around and it's it's it's, it's spaced in the 70s. Yeah. It's, it's got that kind of childlike innocence around it and, and growing up and the kid realising the adult things that are going on under the surface that you hadn't previously noticed. And when's that on again, Jay? It's on Friday night slash Saturday morning, if you know what I mean. Ten past midnight yeah. on Friday night on BBC Two. Excellent. James, what are you recommending? Okay, well, after someone's recommended uh, a terrible film, and up until that point, I thought Jerry was recommending an alright film, um, I'm recommending one of my favourite films from last year, uh, The Intouchables or Untouchable. Um, bit of confusion over the name. But uh, either way, it's an absolutely fantastic film. It was. It's currently sat at number 62 in the IMDb Top 250. It was nominated for a Golden Globe. It was in my top 10 films of last year, which should be one of the things that you pay attention to. Um, and it's basically, uh, for those who don't know, it's about the story of an aristocratic, intellectual, quadriplegic millionaire who interviews candidates for the position of his carer and uh, a young man from the wrong side of the tracks, um, Driss, comes in purely to get his social security check signed off to say that he came for an interview. Uh, He's completely rude, completely inappropriate, and Philippe, the millionaire, decides that he needs a bit of that in his life. It sounds really, really sentimental. It sounds like a horribly sentimental kind of culture clash comedy. But... um, Actually, it does the comedy really, really very well, and it does the serious bits very seriously, and it it really does walk that tightrope fantastically well. Brilliant, brilliant performances by everyone involved. Like I say, hugely funny as well, um, and it's now just become available on Netflix US for those of you who can who've got Netflix and access the US site. Um, for everyone else, it is available to rent uh, and on video on demand everywhere. But I, I really want more people to see it because it's a cracking film. Okay. Um, so that's all for... Oh, hang on. Before we go, James, what's on the website coming up? What have we got planned? Okay, coming up, what have we got planned? Well, we've got um, 
uh, a couple of decade in films. Uh, so we've got Owen's 1973, Owen's favourite films of 1973 coming up. My favourite films of 1963 coming up. It might be a little bit quiet on the site because I'm going off on holiday for a week, which is also why we're not going to be here next week. Um, we'll be back in a fortnight's time. Um, but yeah. What, uh, a fortnight's time? In a fortnight's time, we have got... We're actually doing another triple bill then because it's going to be Father's Day that week. We are doing, as things stand, worst movie fathers. But I don't know if we should maybe have best movie fathers or favourite movie fathers. I don't know. But it's going to be some kind of movie fathers triple bill. Okay. Um, Thanks for everyone who contributed to this week's podcast. Um, And we will see you in a fortnight with the next one. The Fail Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com and you can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at, at failedcritics. Um. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Yes. What news is there? Okay, well, there's the big, uh, the big story in... The world of film has uh, Cannes 2013 has finished, and the Palm Door has been given to um, what IMDb are calling lesb- landmark lesbian romance. Uh, blue is the warmest colour, otherwise known as uh, La Vie d'Adela, um, which there's no blue in that, so clearly that's been changed. I, even I know a bit of French, and I, none of that says blue. But um, French then. Uh, blue is bleu, isn't it, in yeah. French? Yep. <laughs> nice and easy. Um, yes, it's uh, by, uh, directed by Abdelatif Kashiche, I believe it's pronounced. It is as an explicit and epic love story. Um, it's essentially about a, a young woman who, while at university, um, basically discovers that she is a lesbian and has uh, an affair with a fellow young person, I believe, student at university, and then it chronicles their coming together and, I believe, their eventual break-up and the disintegration of the relationship. Um, So that all sounds very European and art house, and apparently it has explicit groundbreaking sex scenes. Again, I'm going from IMDB here. This this isn't my own filter. and as IMDb says, one of which beats the 10-minute mark, which I didn't realise was a kind of grounds for comparison. I didn't realise that was how an august uh, website like IMDb tended to talk about things. But there you go. It's got... Uh, the rumour is... Well, not the rumour. The reports back from France are that it is quite a a groundbreaking, sensual, lesbian, erotic drama. So catch it as a main review when it eventually gets done for our podcast <laughs> got to be better than Rock of Ages surely um, so yeah that one the palm door um, 
not much else really in the world of cinema films this week apart from the fact that um fast and furious 6 had universal's biggest ever opening um uh for a uh, biggest ever weekend opening for a film which makes me right and owen wrong that's the only and because he's not here i can say that mm. so no no other news it's gonna be a quick podcast <laughs> it is <laughs> don't have anyone make up some news or something yeah mm. Okay, well, up next is what we've been watching. So, what we've been watching then, and Jerry, why don't you start us off with what you've been watching? Okay, um, this week I have, well... The film I want to talk about is 21 Grams, um, which is from 2003, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to, right, even as a Spanish speaker, pronouncing some sort of, some of the South and Central American names where there's, <laughs> there's sort of Indian languages in there. It makes it a bit difficult. But his name is Alejandro González Iñárritu. <coughs> it's um, Iñárritu, basically, he's known as in, in, in English. Okay. Um, it's ten years old now. I have seen it a long time ago, but I couldn't remember anything about it. Uh, yeah, I've seen when you said you were going to talk about that one. I've seen it a long time ago, and all I remember thinking was I I really enjoyed it at the time, but I could barely tell you a thing about it. Yeah, um, it's it's this it's a sort of it's a strange film. It's it's got a very big cast in terms of you know Sean Penn and Naomi Watts kind of lead it. Uh, and Benicio del Toro, they're the sort of the three leads, and and those three are really really good in this. They're very strong. It's got you know the supporting cast is pretty good. You've got like like Svedi Marsan uh, in a fairly early role for him in Hollywood. Okay. You know it was quite nice his accent. Mm. Dodgy, but um, <laughs> you know and it reminded me a little bit of Memento in that it the way it tells the story, the way the story unfolds is not conventional chronological storytelling. So. The crux of it is there's um, Sean Penn's character is a, is a mathematician who is I can't I can't really talk about it too much without giving it away because it's told you get snippets and it jumps forward and back in time and you'll see one thing from sort of later on in the chronology and one thing earlier and it jumps between characters and and spaces in time quite a lot and you slowly piece together what's happening um, but Sean Penn's character is ill and um, Naomi Watts' character um, I don't want to give it away too much but <laughs> she's she's having personal issues shall we say of, of, of various forms and Benicio del Toro is, a, is an ex-convict who has found Jesus and their lives are brought together through um, an accident and it explores how their lives sort of slowly become more intertwined. <coughs> and the way the way it plays around with the chronology and the way it's, it's told is actually what makes it more interesting. Mm-hmm. I think actually when you stop and analyse this film as it is, if you played this from point A to point B in a straight normal style, probably not that interesting and engaging a story. It's still interesting, but it, you know it would be mm-hmm. mediocre. 
but the way it's played around with is 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 what makes it interesting. Similar to Memento, you know, the tension in Memento is is a lot of it is due to the the fact that the narrative structure is is messed around with. You know, if you take the the sort of bare components of that in a in a narrative linear narrative, it's not great, or it's certainly not as good as it was previously. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of the way it actually unfolds on screen, it's, it's a good film. Twenty One Grams in the title obviously refers to um, the I don't know whether it's a bit of an urban legend or a, a myth or whatever. It's, it's probably if I had said this on QI, there would be a big alarm yeah. in the background. But there's a, a thing that you lose 21 grams uh, at the moment of death. Everyone loses 21 grams. And, uh, you know, there's a theory that that's how much your soul weighs and all this kind of stuff. Fortunately, that isn't really gone into. It's kind of like the thing that ties it together at the end. But they don't really spend a lot of time on that. Which is Yeah, it's more of a MacGuffin, isn't it? Yeah, mm. like you say, it, it's it's a bit of an overarching idea. Uh, but, yeah, I suppose I suppose death and... You know how everyone, kind of in the end, uh, is is the same, kind of you know is part of the overarching themes, if I remember correctly. You know the 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 the, the themes that unify us all, no matter who we are. Is that would you say? Is that right? Am I remembering it correctly? Yeah, but I mean, yeah. I think if anything, the the twenty one grams thing is, it's kind of one of the criticisms I would have of it is maybe you could make more of that. There's no sort of foreshadowing, not sort of foreshadowing, but you know sometimes there's a, there's a you say something at the start and you say it at the end, and suddenly mm. when at the start it didn't make much sense, but and at the end it does. Yeah, that didn't quite. It could have worked better like that, but mm. it's a, it's not a, an easy film to watch. You know, you won't put it on to watch in the background. You have to be paying attention. Mm. Um, but it captures the the randomness of life. And the way that different lives sort of knock into each other and overlap, and the massive effects small things in other people's lives can have on your life. Um, and it, yeah, like you said, life and death, and the, the sort of interplay between that. There's lots of contrasts and things about being human that are mm-hmm. sort of opposites here that are played with. And it's 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 an interesting, engaging drama. The central performances from the three main characters are very, very good, very mm. strong indeed. Although I think I find Sean Penn quite one-dimensional sometimes. Yeah, I think Sean Penn tends to play Sean Penn a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when he, I mean, he is capable of brilliant, brilliant film films and brilliant performances. And Milk, for instance, he's absolutely superb in that. Then mm. other times like this. Similar, his character in this, he plays it in a similar way. It's kind of, you know, he always does Mystic River, all those kind of films. He's he's good enough, but I think he, they, there could be more from him. But he, he does everything he needs to do to make this mm. character believable. But Del Toro and Watts are absolutely yeah. in this. Brilliant. This was the film that made me really kind of think Naomi Watts is, is actually an actress of incredible talent. She seems to get a lot of flack, Naomi Watts, and I don't know if it's because some of her film choices or something, but actually more often than not, I've seen her in a film and I thought she's done really well, and in this she's fantastic, as is uh, Del Toro, and there's a few um, I think Melissa Leo and Charlotte Gainsbourg, I've just been having you know, I've just, as you've been talking, I've just been trying to remember it desperately, so I looked it up on IMDb, but I do remember you know it's got a really good supporting cast. I, I don't even remember Eddie Marsden being in it. 
Um, but I do remember no, none of the cast ever made me kind of like stop watching for a second. It is a really good ensemble piece. It is. I, I, it's not the best film you're ever going to see, but it's it's better mm. than the vast majority of films you're going to see. Yeah, and oh, that's fair. I think, you know, it's the the way it's shot as well. I have to comment on that. It's brilliantly shot. Some of these, there's some real sort of quiet, solitary moments in it where, you know, you'll have, or visit a character, and visit a character, and visit a character, and then it'll just be 20, 30 seconds of, you know, a city, it's the outline of, you know, a silhouette of a city and, and at sunset or as the lights fade in and just a, a massive flock of birds just flying around. Mm. And it, it's, it's very good at sort of stopping you in your tracks sometimes when you need to and just forcing you to think about it and then just showing you how sort of random and pointless things are. It's very, very well shot. And I mean, his other work is brilliant. Morris uh, Perros is absolutely fantastic film. Uh, Babel, I think, was <sighs> Babel was a frustrating film. If I've yeah. seen that, I've not seen that yet. Actually, I think <sighs> Twenty One Grams is the film that Babel wishes it was. Mm-hmm. I think Babel is trying to do a similar thing and doesn't quite get there. But uh, I haven't seen uh, Beautiful, which is the Javier Bardem one from a couple of years ago. Um, but Amores Peros is, is a fantastic film, mm-hmm. and this was kind of his follow-up to this. Um, He's got a film filming at the moment called Birdman, um, which is actually a bit of a. I think it's going towards the comedy, and it's because it's got. It's, but the cast in that is absolutely fantastic. I really, I mean, there's Emma Stone, uh, Ed Norton, Zach Galifianakis, Naomi Watts, Andrea Risborough, uh, Michael Keaton, Amy Ryan. It's a great cast. It's, it's a fantastic yeah. cast, and he seems to do very well at managing casts. I mean, even with Babel, there was you know you had you had Brad Pitt. You had uh, Kate Blanchett. You had um, I'm trying to remember who else was in there. I think Gail Garcia Bernal's in there somewhere. Um, there was there was a real mix in that, and I think that was a bit too ambitious. Whereas when he gets it right, and he he seems to attract really good actors, and he had to you know they really seem to want to work with him. Um, and you know Bardem with Beautiful again, he's very very good at getting top acting talent and getting a real sort of international mix as well, you know, which is very nice because it's not like your standard Hollywood film where everyone, mm. like, everyone is, um, you know, American, whatever. He's, he's very good at, at mixing those things. And I think <sighs> this film is probably not as good as Amores Peros, but it's much better than Babel. Mm. And <sighs> I don't want to sound too condescending, but it's the kind of film that should be made more, if you know what I mean. I don't yeah. be a snob and say, you know, blockbusters. I enjoyed Fast and the Furious 6, for example. I really enjoyed that yeah. kind of film. But you need more of these kind of films being made in the mainstream, you know, thought-provoking, quite contemplative, but with real sort of power and, and um, explosive scenes. You know, it's not just a, mm. it's not a quiet, talkable, talky film. It's, it's some action. It's, it's quite visceral at times. And it's, it's really the kind of film that I would like to see more more of them made mm. but very good very good I would I would recommend it and if you haven't seen it in a long time like I haven't it's it's worth a rewatch because the, the crazy chronology on its own is enough to just keep you engaged even if you can remember the story you start sort of once I started piecing together what was what was going to happen out of memory and out of what you know what I could gather from the story it became interesting to to see how the narrative was going to be told then 
and where things were going to be revealed and what the tension, you know, where the tension was going to occur in the story. So it, it's a good film. It's a very good film. Excellent. James, what have you watched this week? Um, well, I've spent most of my week trying to get through the new season of Arrested Development, but I've promised to hold off talking about that until Owen's back. Um, so I'm going to talk about a film that I've watched for the first time for our decade in cinema uh, pieces. It's fil- so it's a film from 1963, because I'm doing the 60s. Um, and it's a film I've been meaning to watch for a little while called Billy Liar. Um, I've, I kind of know it more by reputation than anything else. I know the title. Um, it's directed by John uh, Schlesinger, who actually won an Oscar for Midnight Cowboy in the 70s. Also directed Marathon Man as well. But this is a film um, that's one of the real classic British kin- kitchen sink dramas, or you know, part of the British New Wave of the 1960s. Have you read the, um, the book, James? I haven't, no. Um, but I, yeah, I know it's based on a novel by Keith Waterstone, and, which was turned into a play and then turned into a film. Pardon? Keith Waterhouse. Waterhouse, sorry, yeah. Because you said book, and then I thought the booksellers. Yeah. Culture <laughs> brethren here. Yes. Is the book good then? The, it, yeah, it's it's a bit similar to Kes, and I think the film will probably come across as a bit similar to Kes. Do you know what I mean? It's of that ilk. Yeah, what I would say, the film was funnier than I thought it would be, actually. Um, it is, you know, it is very much of the British New Wave, um, which ironically helped, you know, although it's very much of its time, it it felt a lot fresher and a lot less dated than I imagined it would do. Um, so it's got a real cinema verite feel. Um, it uses real locations. Um, I think it was filmed in Bradford. Um, it uses a swear word. Uh, at some point someone says pissed, um, which back then for a British film was actually quite a big deal. Um, so... In that sense, it's it's a very realistic, um, well-acted, um, well-shot film. Uh, just to give you an idea, basically Billy Fisher, played by uh, Tom Courtenay, is a young clerk, works in a provincial northern town, um, and basically he daydreams of being somewhere, basically anywhere else. Uh, and the film takes place over a rough 24-hour period, which we spend with him is... His life begins rapidly unravelling. His employer, who is a funeral director played uh, by Leonard Rossiter, I seem to be seeing lots of films recently with Leonard Rossiter in, and that's a good thing. Um, He's uncovered some petty fraud by Billy. Basically, Billy was meant to send out um, a load of calendars to customers, and he didn't send out the calendars. He pocketed the postage money, and he's, you know, there's a kind of farcical scenes where he's trying to hide this wardrobe full of calendars that he's got in his bedroom that he lives in his parents' house and then at some point he's trying to get rid of them at work by flushing them down the toilet a bit at a time. Um, And it's these moments of levity which actually really work quite nicely. Um, He's struggling um, to remain engaged to two different women, two very different styles of women. Part of it feels a little bit carry-on in places but it's grounded enough so that you don't ever kind of like lose focus. You don't ever feel pulled out of the picture. Um, he's in love with a third woman uh, called Liz, who's played by, in this, the wonderful Julie Christian. Actually, watching one of these films, for a young person like me, I know you take the piss out of how old I am, but seeing these great actors that I've only ever seen kind of as older 50, 60, 70-year-old people 
it's, it's really refreshing to see them in their youth and actually realise how they became famous. Um, and this is a case here. I've never seen Tom Courtney in anything when he's not been an old man. And seeing him as the young Billy Lark, he's absolutely fantastic in this. Because um, what you've got here is a character who is stealing from his employers, um, stringing along two women, being a bit of a dick around his parents, who are, you know, he's living with. He could be a really unlikable character. He should be quite an unlikable character but he gets away with it because he's got this great charm he's got a cheeky grin and he also just personifies this um this daydreaming quality yeah you know, he's charming enough to get us to warm to him and every mistake that he makes every kind of hole that he digs for himself and he keeps digging because he'll tell a small lie and then have to cover it with a bigger lie and then a bigger lie and that kind of almost that traditional british sitcom style um, each each of those lies isn't out of malice or out of some cynical, conniving nature. It's a it's a childish, innocent selfishness. He just wants to live in a better world. So he dreams of writing scripts and of going to London. So he tells everyone that he's got a job working in London as a scriptwriter for a famous comedian who happens to be in town that day opening a supermarket. Um, and he has sent the scripts, but he's not heard back. Uh, and it's you know so he he builds lies upon he builds up his part to be bigger than he is and he just wants to get out of this town. Um, very very funny and a lot of the humour actually comes from Billy's daydreams, which again when you consider you're watching a black and white film from the 1960s filmed in Britain, some of the sequences are quite shocking. Um, there's a moment where his dad's having a go at him. And he just imagines machine gunning his family to death. And it's actually quite a light mode. But it comes out of nowhere. And it's really well shot. Um, and the main daydreams. He daydreams about this land called Ambrosia. Where he is king of this land. And he just kind of. He withdraws into this daydream world. And um, the only person who can kind of even get through to him a tiny bit. Is Liz. Who quite often leaves this town to go and have adventures and she only comes back when she needs to come back she's the only one who understands him and you've got this mystery at, uh, at the heart of it which is can he finally leave this town and run off with Liz or will he stay and uh, go further into his shell and it's, it's a wonderful film I really really enjoyed this film it's definitely going to be in my decade list um, very funny and uh, actually like I say, it feels fresh. It doesn't feel dated at all. Well, I've seen a lot of films. Personally, like a kind of person, don't they? Do you know what I mean? Was, Pardon, sorry. Everybody knows a kind of a Billy yeah. kind of person. There was always that lad at school who, you know, used to make up shite about. Yeah. Yeah, my dad did this, and oh yeah, I was walking home the other day and I found a hundred quid. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And and then there's other bits of it which I'll be honest, I I kind of sympathised and seen. I had seen him. You know that. That wanting to get out of somewhere, that wanting to get out of a small provincial town. Yeah, you know, I live in the metropolis of Leicester now, so I've obviously was made it, good on that. Was it shot in Bradford? <laughs> it was shot in Bradford, yeah. And there's a little bit up on uh, up on the hills around Bradford, but um, it it's in a way it's really nice because bits of it just capture British life as it was then, um, uh, because you. 
they did just film on location. So it wasn't like, say, the Ealing comedies of the 40s and 50s on big sound stages with very clipped accents and actorly actors. And I love the Ealing comedies. Um, But this actually feels almost like a document of Britain in the 1960s, just as it was starting to change. Um, We were just getting past those post-war years. And that sense also kind of permeates... Um, Billy Fisher's imagination the fact is he's of that first generation that could go out and just strike out on their own and make something of themselves that didn't have to follow in their father's footsteps but he needs the gumption to take that step himself he's he's a frustrating character but you want to spend that time with him and a lot of that is down to uh, Tom Courtney's brilliant performance, it's interesting he was the understudy for Albert Finney in the West End run but um, I can't imagine, I'll be honest, I can't even imagine a young Albert Finney doing the role as it's done in this film because it's um, I, it, it's the kind of archetypal cheeky chappy but with a heart of vulnerability. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I had to get it on um, by disc from Love Film. I don't, I don't think it's available to stream anywhere, but it's worth keeping an eye out for if it's on TV or if you see it cheap in a charity shop or something like that. Okay, um, well, I have not watched any films in this last week. I've been, so, what I have watched is a lot of Frasier, which naturally carried on after I finished watching Cheers. As for those who don't know, Frasier was a character in Cheers, and he got his own spin-off show. And it was, let's be fair... Did, sorry, Steve, did you get to the end of Cheers? Did you watch all of Cheers I watched then? all of Cheers. Oh, it okay, yeah. Bloody brilliant. Yeah, I'd probably rather talk about Cheers than Frasier, but anyway. <laughs> yes, Frasier. Because Frasier's a re- weird one, isn't it? Because it's the, the spin-off that did probably just as well, maybe even yeah. better commercially. It's certainly no Joey. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly no The Cleveland Show. Oh dear, yeah. Um, yes, so Frasier... <clears throat> I think everyone knows it. I don't really need to describe Frasier to anyone, do I? Probably. Go on, just in case. Just in okay, case. Okay, so Frasier was a character in Cheers. He was a psychiatrist, uh, and Cheers was set in Boston. When Cheers finished, he moved to Seattle to start a radio psychiatry show, uh, and he moves in with his dad, who was a policeman who got shot, um, and his English physiotherapist, who moves in with them, and his brother, Niles, doesn't live with them, but he's pretty much always there. And it is... Probably one of the funniest sitcoms I've seen. It's definitely in the top five. Um, wow. I think I think it suffers because people think because of the character of Frasier is quite intelligent and quite snobbish. They think that that's the kind of humour it's going to be, and it's not really. But I think people just assume it's that kind of character, mm. and a lot of the jokes, a lot of the humour is going to go over their head. But but yeah no no I because I, I, I always got that impression before I think when I started watching it when I was like twelve thirteen or something like that I got that impression because it felt like a grown up show but no no you're exactly right definitely it's definitely a grown up sitcom I know it's mm. on at like ten o'clock in the morning on Channel Four but it's definitely aimed at adults it's not a family sitcom you know it's not loads of swearing or nothing like that but it's oh, no, definitely it's aimed classier than that yeah, yeah. It's, de- it's definitely aimed at adults rather than kids or families or whatever but it's you know it's not highbrow 
despite the character, the, mm. the main characters being highbrow. No, because you're encouraged to laugh. I, 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 you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because it is a long time since I've seen it. But my recollection is, Frasier is usually the butt of the jokes. Yeah, most yeah. of the time. And you're, you're almost always on uh, Marty's side in any kind yeah, of he's conflict. Got, he's got his dad, Marty, or Daphne, or Roz, who are all kind of working yeah. class, more normal people who are all central to the plot. So. Um, but I'm just up to season four of that, about halfway through on Netflix. Um, Have you seen the Christmas episode? I saw that, that was on TV the other week. I ended up watching it. The, the Christmas episode where he's trying to get a, a present for his son. Um, it's quite touching with the terms of what he, what his dad gets and stuff. But he's in, yeah. like, he's in the shop and the guy's like, you really need this, sir? And you think it's going to be such yeah. a touching moment. And then he's like, yeah, $700. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember I got my father-in-law a DVD of all the Christmas for some reason they released a DVD with every Christmas episode of Frasier on the same DVD he he very much enjoyed that so I've not seen it for a long time but there's a few shows I've seen on Netflix recently that I watched when I was younger never complete never watched every single one of them and I've I've got that hankering to do what you're up to Steve Mm. To be um, honest, I've never watched Cheers, so I don't think I've seen a single episode of Cheers. Cheers is great. Cheers is amazing. I'm, mm. Seriously, it is one of the funniest programs I've ever watched. Every character is excellent. There, there is no wasted main character in it, um, and there, you know, there's great performances from everybody. I don't get some of the inconsistencies with with Frasier, and the same character played in Cheers and in Frasier, uh, mm. like. He explains the fact that he told everyone in Cheers that his dad was dead, and he explains that in it. But it's like his dad is quite working class and likes sports, whereas Frasier doesn't. But in Cheers, Frasier quite clearly watches sports and understands sports. Mm. It's just little things like that. It's been a bit tighter with the writing and the continuity. But um, but the star of the show probably isn't Frasier for me. It's the, um, his brother Niles. Yeah, I think Not, yeah. I think he steals it every time he's on. He's he's fantastic from his from just sort of the way he is as a person to his kind of infatuation with Daphne. Yeah. Also, the fact that he's called Niles, as in the River Nile with an S on the end. What the hell is that? That's not a name. <laughs> you should see what some of the some parents are calling their kids now. Well, I know. I, I'm, I oh, Niles is normal compared to some <laughs> shite that comes out. One of my favourite things about Frasier, by the way, is um, obviously, as ever, bringing it back to The Simpsons, because um, Kelsey <laughs> Grammer, uh, obviously, is Sideshow Bob. Yeah. But um, the guy who plays Niles, whose name escapes me, plays... David Hyde Pierce. He plays Sideshow Bob's brother, Cecil. Yeah. And then Frasier's dad, again, I can't remember the name of him, plays their dad in an episode of The Simpsons as well. But that, 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 that those... The Simpsons turns into a fast when his dad turns up, is <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. Uh, yeah. Sideshow Bob. Um, uh, just to say, uh, the one where they, uh, the Simpsons, get uh, going to witness protection at Cape Fear is my favourite uh, Simpsons episode. My, my favourite Simpsons one was on telly today. It was on Sky Sky One. Which one's that? Homer at the Bat. Oh, that's a nice classic that, episode. That, that. Yeah. absolute brilliant. Everything about proper that. classic Simpsons. Yeah. 
Simpsons doesn't exist for me past about 1998. It just didn't happen. Yeah, sensible. Mm. Um, so yes, watch Frasier. It's on Channel 4 every morning, like three episodes, or if you've got Netflix, it's on there as well. Excellent. Yes. Uh, so we're going to have a break, and then we'll be back with our hastily arranged triple bill. Right, triple bill. We haven't done one for a while, have we? Can't remember what the last uh, one was. I can't remember what the last one was either. It was... Uh, no, no, I'm not even going to try and remember. Anyway, I think yeah, we're back. think it was a hastily arranged one as well. Yes, it was. Um, was it? Oh, it was the sub. Um, it was the short films. You know what I mean? Sub- yeah, films under eighty minutes. Yeah, that was it. That that was hastily arranged as well. Probably because we'd postponed Studio Ghibli again. It will happen. Yes, it will. This, it definitely. Will. This week's uh, triple bill is good performances in otherwise bad films. Yes. And I'm going to actually first. Did we get? We got quite a few suggestions, didn't we? From we did get some suggestions, actually, um, but I'm going to leave those to the end, just in case they kind of clash with a few of ours. That's all I'm saying, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Okay, well, I'll kick us off. Uh, I'm going to start off with um, Big Willie star, Will Smith, in I Am Legend, because he is fantastic in I Am Legend as Robert Neville, the scientist who's trying to save the world from basically coming to an end. Um, with are they zombies or vampires or a bit of both? The the vampires aren't they? Yeah, humans. Anyway, he's trying to save the world from them, and he thinks he's the only man alive. Um, he's really good in it, playing kind of just a man on his own. You know, he's he's basically acting with himself and occasionally a dog. Um, but he's let down by a script that changes the the premise of the book. And if they had stuck to the premise of the book, they probably would have had a, like a really decent summer blockbuster with Will Smith in it on their hands. Mm-hmm. But they changed they changed the the book the ending from the book ending, and just made it dumb. Yeah, I've still not seen it. I, I keep meaning to, and I've got um, I've got the very very original one that Owens talked about for the uh, the Vincent Price. I've watched one. the um. Amiga Man, yeah, Charlton Heston, yeah, yeah. I've watched Amiga Man, which was really good actually. Mm. Um, yeah, and no, and you could have seen with Will Will Smith in it. This one, if they'd stuck to how the script, how the story should pan out, mm-hmm. then you could see this one being on kind of a par with Amiga Man. But they just whoever decided to write a script, they said, "No, we're going to change the ending of a book. It's a really good book, and everyone likes the book. And they've made some films about the book, and they've been quite successful. We're going to do something different with it." It's going to be really stupid. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it was a really, really long development on that film. I've been reading about it in the uh, David Hughes book, The Greatest Sci-Fi Films Never Made, talking about like all the different like choices. And at one point, Arnie was signed up to play the lead in that as some kind of mild-mannered scientist in his own inimitable way. Uh, and my second and third film... A kind of cheating, well, not cheating, but you know, it kind of encompasses four films, although one of which I've not seen. And it's Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Crossover. 
I was going to say that, but I did like the first one, and I, I've not really watched any of the. I, I think the, I think the first one was quite good. You know, is it like uh, blockbuster action adventure? Mm. Two and I've not seen four. Two and three were ropey, stupid, overly complex plots carried by Johnny Depp putting in an amazing performance as this eccentric mental pirate captain. Um, Jerry can join. Yeah, he's by far the best thing in it. Yeah, he is. He is by far and away the best thing in it, and he is just phenomenal. Although in a, in a movie that features Orlando Bloom as a central part of the acting cast, yes. he's always going to stand out. The, the, wood, the most yeah. wooden thing in the films aren't the ships. Oh, nicely done, oh. sir. All the I, I do remember thinking um, Jeffrey Rush was good, actually, as the bad guy in the first one, because Jeffrey Rush is a proper actor. Um, the first one was quite good, but then they tended to get over overcomplicated with the plots in the second two. That's mm. the second and third one. I and think I've seen the second one in the background, but I, the third one watch, just looked awful. I never. Yeah, I watched the first half hour, like one Christmas on BBC of the second one. I thought I can't be asked with this. It really bored me. So, yeah, no, but but I'm sure Johnny Depp did his thing in those films. So I think that's. A perfectly legitimate. If if, play. if if someone else was playing that character, Matthew Modine, for example, <laughs> yeah. then, then it would have just absolutely bombed. <laughs> so, and more on Matthew Modine later on in this podcast. Hey, <laughs> he must be claiming royalties off of us by now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Jerry, as we've had a bit of crossover, do you want to carry on? Haven't you got another one? No, because I was just chucking in like a couple of them as to. Um, I'll have to fill out my list. Oh. <laughs> Ever the professional. Um, Efficient. Right. <laughs> shambolic. Well, obviously, I went for Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, but I can only really speak for the first one on that one. Another one might be a bit controversial here. Um, Alan Rickman in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. See, I, I saw that on a list that I googled, and I was like, but I love Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think... It's one of those films where, as a kid, it was really good. Yeah. And when I watched it again as an adult, I was like, oh my god, this is awful. Is it really? I, I've not seen it in years. Yeah, I just... Oh, I'm upset now. It was a bit all over the show. Yeah. So a bit weird. Mm. I mean, it's got some quite interesting things to say about sort of the morality of that time, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. But, yeah, but I think the best thing I can say uh, is, is it, to you, to quote, is, is to quote Roger Ebert on this. Mm. Um, he says, um, the most colourful character is the villain, the Sheriff of Nottingham, but both the character and the performance are inappropriate for this film. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, um, He's wicked. He's a wicked, droll, sly, witty master of the put-down and one-liners who rolls his eyes in exasperation when Robin comes bursting in to interrupt the rape. Rickman's performance has nothing to do with anything else in the movie and indeed seems to proceed from a uniquely personal set of assumptions about what century, universe, etc. the story is set in. But at least when Rickman <laughs> appears on the screen, we perk up because we know we'll be entertained at whatever cost to the story. <laughs> oh, bless Eva. Yeah, no, Rickman is just proper English villain in that film um, which is great now I, I do remember there's not a huge amount of chemistry between 
Costner and whoever played Maid Marian. Um, I remember Morgan Freeman's. That's just a weird character they've got going on there with more. Morgan Freeman's more. Yeah, uh, Christian Slater's uppity little. Yeah, no, I can probably. um, Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think, yeah, it's probably not as good as I thought it was. But Rickman is absolutely superb in this. He is so over the top, but so brilliant. Yeah, and he's actually he's probably one of the best villain performances of all time, I would say. Yeah. Oh, he's one of my favorite. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite screen villains. I'm not sure it. Actually, I'm not sure whether I prefer this or his Die Hard performance. Mm. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I think Prince of Thieves is more entertaining. It's just Hans Gruber's in a much better film. Yeah, Sheriff of Nottingham is probably the better performance, but that yeah. is by far the better film. Yeah. It's just a ludicrous film. Um, and if, you, if, like me, you haven't watched it for a number of years, go back and watch it and you'll yeah. realise. Although you might not want to because it might shatter your childhood illusions. There's, so, there's certain films that you don't want to watch as an adult because you know they're going to be shit, really. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm middle-aged enough now to not care that it, yeah, maybe I can actually listen to that Brian Adams song finally, after years of shunning it. Don't push it. <laughs> <laughs> My final choice um, forward, try and update things slightly, um, is Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've not seen this yet, but I've seen that on a few lists when I was doing my research. Well, I've got a confession to make here. I turned The Iron Lady off. Yeah. Because... Well, one, she wasn't suffering enough for my liking. I mean, it, I know it's a tale of watching an old woman, you know, suffer with dementia and mm. be haunted by the fact that her husband's died, but she was not suffering anywhere near enough for me for my liking. It needed to be much closer to the Saw films for me to enjoy a cinematic portrayal <laughs> of Thatcher. But um, Meryl Streep was pretty good at it, to the extent that I disliked the film enough to turn it off because she was reminding me too much of actual Margaret Thatcher and I didn't want, you know... It was the fact that they were trying to make it sympathetic to her and just thought, no, bollocks. And for me, yeah. the film off that stars Olivia Colman is, is a strong thing, so... Yeah, and because I've heard she's also very, very good in it as well. Um, I think my... Because I've still not watched it because I, I, I am of a... I am of similar political sympathies to you, Jerry. And... Um, yeah, everything I read about it was not necessarily that it was. Well, it's it's not even the fact that it was uh, it was pro what she did. Okay, it was the fact that it kind of willfully only presented one side and tried to ignore the controversy and kind of built up the fact that look, isn't it amazing that a woman became prime minister and isn't that amazing? Not actually, didn't actually analyse her. Her, her reign. Uh, yeah, and I think for a film that is, is looking at her in her later years, mm. the lack of examination of the legacy was mm. uh, very disagreeable, shall we say. Yeah. But she's, I mean, Meryl Streep's pretty good in this. It's probably not her best performance, but it's Meryl Streep, so by anybody else's yeah. standards... It's always going to be professional. Yeah, yeah, and by anybody else's standards, this would be a career-defining performance. So actually, because it's Meryl Streep, it's just another good Meryl Street performance, if you know what I mean. But she's very good. Unfortunately, she was not good enough to make me want to keep watching the film. But there you go. 
James, your choices. Okay, yeah, that my I'm denied. Even though this was hastily arranged, I, I made my notes and everything like that. Um, at one at one point, I was just going to pick three Nick Cage performances um, because I think every other one of his performances is a great performance in a bad film. But I decided no, I'm going to leave Nick Cage out of this. And I also thought I'm only going to concentrate on films that I thought were genuinely pretty bad, rather than ones that other people might have seen something in that I didn't like. So, for example, I left out Tom Hardy and Bronson because a lot of people... I I think there's more to Bronson than... He's the best thing in Bronson, but I think there is still some more to it than just him. Uh, Same with uh, John Goodman in Flight and Dowd in Compliance and uh, uh, the the leads in Beasts of the Southern Wild. So uh, I've gone for three films I've actually seen in the last year. Um, because my memory's fading now, so I've had to focus on what I've seen in the last year. So I'm going to start off with a film actually from this year. Um, it was the surprise film at Glasgow Film Festival, and I went to see it with our good friend Dave McFarlane from our, our sister podcast, Born Offside. Um, Spring Breakers and James Franco as Alien. One of the the best things about this performance was I didn't realise it was James Franco until the next day when I went home and I was writing up my review and I thought, oh, who played that rapper? Whoa, it was James Franco. Did did not get it at all because I went into the film not knowing anything about it being the surprise film. Um, You kind of see him performing at the start, but basically he plays a a rapper stroke drug dealer stroke criminal uh, in this film. Spring Break is about four young women who go off to spring break and it goes they go on a bit of a crime spree and one of them is Selena Gomez and another one is um, Hudge- Vanessa Hudgens so uh, directed by Harmony Queen terrible, terrible film it's like a 90 minute weird wet dream sequence um, feels like three hours um, and Franco is the one bright spark in this film uh, he he's a, plays a kind of cross between Gary Oldman's Drexel in True Romance and um, Crazy Eyes Killer from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, in fact, there is a scene pretty much stolen from Curb Your Enthusiasm in here, where he's talking about having Scar. He's in his bedroom talking about having Scarface playing 24/7 on one of the TVs, and he just keeps saying, "Look at all my shit." And it, 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 he's like, he provides some comic relief in an otherwise completely soulless and heartless film. Uh, and there's one scene in particular where he's just sat at his poolside piano with his biatches around him, and he starts tinkling the ivories, and then just sings a Britney Spears song, just for the damn hell of it. He was the only bit that made me laugh in the film, uh, and even now sometimes hated the film. I'm sure I never want to watch it again, but part of me kind of does to see was it as bad as I thought I was. But I'll just be walking down the street and in my head hearing him going, Spring Break Forever, bitches! Yeah, he's, he is the only good thing about that film. So that's my first one. Um, my second one is Paul Bettany as Michael in Legion. Uh, have either of you seen Legion? No. No. Don't. Okay, 2010 film, directed by Scott Stewart, who went on to do Priest, which also starred Paul Bettany, and recently did Dark Skies, which was, uh, I think Owen went to see it, Makers of Insidious, right? I like Paul Bettany a lot, and it really hurts me, actually, that he's got to do so much crap these days. Never really made that breakthrough, because he was um, 
He, I first saw him in A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, and he played Chaucer in that. I thought absolutely brilliant, very funny, uh, very fresh, you know, talent. Uh, and he's had kind of bit parts uh, or secondary roles in other. He was in A Beautiful Mind. Um, yeah, he's fantastic in A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World as well. Very, very good in that. Um, but he never really made it up to leading man status. He did star in Wimbledon, the terrible rom-com with, uh, with him as a failed British tennis player with Kirsten Dunst. That's not good. Uh, that's not the performance I'm going for, though. It's, it's Legion, in which he plays a fallen archangel called Michael, who is mankind's last hope as God decides to bring about the apocalypse, because he's had enough of us. Uh, but he goes against God's orders, and him and a bunch of misfit humans make their last stand in a remote diner in uh, somewhere in the deep south of America. Ridiculous special effects. Some old granny who then launches onto a ceiling and starts attacking people. Uh, terrible fight scenes. And a plot that actually starts quite interestingly, but then ends up taking itself far too seriously, getting itself twisted in knots. It's one of the worst films I've seen of the last year. But throughout all that, Paul Bettany, as the kind of tattooed, um, fallen angel who is determined to make up for past misdeeds, again, as I said, he's the one bright spot in this film. And this film features uh, one of the Dennis Quaid. There you go. Not a good film. Um, and then finally, uh, Susan Sarandon. Who, I'm, again, big fan of Susan Sarandon. As Sarah Roberts in The Hunger. Now, it's from 1983, directed by Tony Scott. I saw this at Bowie Fest last year. And despite the fact that it's a Tony Scott film, despite the fact it's got David Bowie in, it was definitely the weakest film of the festival. Um, Catherine Deneuve plays an Egyptian vampire called Miriam. Uh, who lives in Manhattan and who subsists on the blood of her lovers who never age until she gets bored of them and then their days are numbered pretty damn quickly. And this happens to her husband, John, who's played by Bowie. She starts getting bored of him, so he just terrifyingly ages over a day. It's quite, That's one of the good scenes of the film is when he's he goes to a hospital to look for this famous doctor played by Susan Sarandon, who can help. Uh, she's you know, working in the fight against ageing, and he goes there to try and get help. She sees him too late, and um, she starts inquiring after this man who aged in a day and gets drawn into Catherine Deneuve's weird, lesbian, vampirical trap. Um, it's utterly schlocky. Terrible, terrible plot. Um you don't even really see that much of what would make Tony Scott a great action director. But through all of this, Susan Sarandon plays the innocence really well. She plays the turn to the potential dark side really well. And watching her performance in this is like watching someone... You know, when you watch those films of er, you know, those early performances of people that you know become stars and you can tell actually they're going to be... You, know, you can see why they became good. This is one of those performances. So that's my last one. Okay. Uh, so what what are the other choices then that people told us about? Senator so Tim? other ones, yeah, other ones we had. Well, um, uh, Dave uh, Dave McFarlane actually he 
sent in his three and one of his was James Franco in Spring Breakers because he had exactly the same experience I did um, for Dave to have submitted three films that's an achievement in itself yeah I know uh, and not one of them not one of them is like um, Good Girls Gone Bad or anything like that as well it's you know three actual theatrical release films um, Tom Cruise in Rock of Ages, which was on my shortlist, but I felt we'd spoken about that far too much. I just, I just uh, didn't want to publicise the film anymore, but yeah, I, yeah. Do, I do agree. He was a shining light in an absolute dismal film. Yeah, if they and a film um, completely about him, it, yeah, it could, we might have had a half decent and removed all the singing. Might have had a half yeah. decent film there. Um, I feel the same about Les Mis, though. If he'd made about it all about Tom Cruise and taken away all the singing, it would have been great. Was Tom Cruise in Les <laughs> Well confused. No, but, you know, if they had... Should... Yeah, yeah, no, no, I can see that. Um, he also went for Raul Julia in Street Fighter as well. Um, Matt Lamborn, uh, the site's very own Matt Lamborn, went for Christopher Lambert in Mortal Kombat. Although, isn't that just someone being not as shit as everyone else in a terrible film? I'm, I'm not sure. Um... Uh, John the Journo, uh, who's also written for us before, John Fitz, he quite liked George Clooney as Batman, but I, I've got to say I think it's it's Arnie in Batman and Robin that is. I was going to say the standout performer there. Um, contender in, on my list. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. And then um, uh, Jackson Tyler, uh, who is um, at Tyler A zero zero two why you'd have that as your username on Twitter. But anyway, he says uh, William Fitchner in Drive Angry, and I think William Fitchner's a great actor. Uh, Ewan McGregor in Star Wars prequels. Ricardo Montalban, um, Montalban uh, Khan himself, in Spy Kids 3, and then this one's quite controversial. Lance Henriksen in Aliens. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Get it's one dickhead, isn't there? <laughs> Just have to ruin it for everyone. I bet he threw that on the end there, and he's not even being serious. He's just trying to annoy people. He threw it on the end and hashtagged it, yup. So, yeah. <laughs> just I'm, really... No, I'm calling him out here. He's done that on purpose to try and wind people up. We're not wound up. We've caught you out, so joke's on you, mate. Maybe he knew Owen wasn't going to be on, and he knew Owen wasn't going to troll us by saying Harrison Ford in Star Wars. Yeah. So he was like, so right, someone someone's going to wind them up. Oh, God, oh, yeah, I can't but... even begin to go into how many different ways that's wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's thank you, everyone, for getting those in. Um, yeah, that, that's, I think that went quite well, considering we only came up with it. Thanks to Jerry as well. Jerry's idea this afternoon. Well, well do done. Have one or two. About time you started contributing. <laughs> yeah, that's my ideas for like the year, really. Don't don't start getting your hopes up. This is it now. That's that's my contribution. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll be back in a little moment um, with a little bit of a look ahead to what films are on telly this week and what you can expect from the website in the upcoming period. So. We've got some recommendations then for the coming week in film. I've got one. It is on Friday afternoon, or Friday evening, I should say. It starts at 8.40 on Film 4. And it is Cutthroat Island, starring 
Matthew Modine and Gina Davies. Now, I've reviewed this as one of the biggest, well, it is the biggest box office flop of all time. I reviewed this on the podcast and the site. Um, and it, yes, uh, it, watch it just to see how bad it is. I'd record it so you can fast forward for all the adverts, but you know, definitely watch it just to see how bad it is. I, I'm definitely going to do that now because I know how difficult it was for you to track down a copy yeah, of that. Oh, and now it turns up on bloody film. And that just turns up on telly. <laughs> so yes, watch that. It will be so bad. It's bad. It sounds like an experience. It sounds like one of those. That you it just, it's just one of those films you have to have seen. Yeah. Yeah. Good set design though. So. Uh, Jerry, what are you recommending for people? Um, I am going to recommend a film called Lime Life, um, which is from 2008. It's on BBC Two on sort of Friday night slash Saturday morning, if you know what I mean. Ten past midnight. Um, so technically it's Saturday, but really it's Friday night. Um, it's set in sort of rural US. I can't remember where exactly in the 70s. Um, and it's a small community and someone contracts Lyme disease and it's about how the community reacts to that and, and focused around a couple of families in particular and their reactions to it and and how their behaviour changes and then sort of family secrets slowly unravelling as a result of this. Uh, it's got Rory Culkin, who's Macaulay Culkin's brother. Um, it's also got Kieran Culkin in as well, the two of them, um, and they play brothers in this and they, they work quite well. It's got Alec Baldwin in. Uh, some people like Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's great. Yeah, I'm not going to praise him too much because some people fucking hate Alec Baldwin. Who who hates Alec Baldwin? Well, the Team America World Police proved pretty. They. Oh yeah, I suppose that's a little bit around his. Uh, yeah, although they had George Clooney and Matt Damon in there as well. Oh, no, I know you hate George Clooney, but no, I thought I thought especially since Thirty Rock kind of resurrected his career, I thought we all agreed that Alec Baldwin was a national treasure. He's a bit of an ass. Let's be honest. Everybody knows he's a bit of an ass. Oh yeah, but I mean on screen as an actor, I, I, I always enjoy his performances. Sometimes he's always. a bit smug for my liking, but anyway, okay. I don't get why he seems to divide people. Okay, I, I didn't realise that. Mm. That's the whole, oh, you've opened my eyes to a whole new subculture of people who don't like Alec Baldwin. Well, I'm just kind of in the middle sometimes. Every day's a school day. Yeah, um, Cynthia Nixon's in it as well. Who's um, she's pretty good, actually. Mm. She she can do some real serious acting when she wants to. Um, <laughs> unfortunately for her, this is it's not a big role really. Mm. But um, unfortunately for her, she's known for Sex and the City. Yeah, she's known as the lesbian one from Sex and the City. Uh, yeah, and pretty much that's it. Yeah. yeah, but she's she's pretty good in this. It's it's a, a fairly good film. I ended up seeing it as a free preview when it came out. Um, there's a real innocence around it because it's it's seen through the eyes of a 15 year old boy. So it's quite nice. You know, the kind of whole Spielberg 80s 70s ethos of making films about rural America. That kind. Of, it, it's quite actually. Do you know what it, it reminds me of, James? You know what I'm going to say? Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, everyone's favourite Aubrey Plaza film. Yes. Oh, okay, now I'm in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, safety not guaranteed. Indeed. Okay. Oh, now I'm in. Because up until then, you were kind of like, yeah, it's quite nice. It's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. But, yeah, if it's if it's 
if it's got the same kind of feel as safe, not guaranteed. I mean, yeah, it's kind of rural America. It's you know the, the woods are around and it's it's it's, it's spaced in the seventies. Yeah, it's, it's got that kind of childlike innocence around it and, and growing up and the kid realizing the adult things that are going on under the surface that you hadn't previously noticed. And when's that on again, Jay? It's on Friday night slash Saturday morning, if you know what I mean. Ten past midnight yeah. on Friday night on BBC Two. Excellent. James, what are you recommending? Okay, well, after someone's recommended uh, a terrible film, and up until that point, I thought Jerry was recommending an alright film, um, I'm recommending one of my favourite films from last year, uh, The Untouchables or Untouchable, um, bit of confusion over the name, but uh, either way, it's an absolutely fantastic film. It was, it's currently sat at number 62 in the IMDb Top 250. It was nominated for a Golden Globe. It was in my top 10 films of last year, which should be one of the things that you pay attention to. Um, and it's basically, uh, for those who don't know, it's about the story of an aristocratic, intellectual, quadriplegic millionaire who interviews candidates for the position of his carer and uh, a young man from the wrong side of the tracks, um, Driss, comes in purely to get his social security check signed off to say that he came for an interview. Uh, he's completely rude, completely inappropriate, and Philippe, the millionaire, decides that he needs a bit of that in his life. It sounds really, really sentimental. It sounds like a horribly sentimental kind of culture clash comedy. But... um actually it does the comedy really really very well and it does the serious bits very seriously and it it really does walk that tightrope fantastically well brilliant brilliant performances by everyone involved like i say hugely funny as well um and it's now just become available on Netflix US for those of you who can who've got Netflix and access the US site. Um, for everyone else, it is available to rent uh, and on video on demand everywhere. But I, I really want more people to see it because it's a cracking film. Okay, and um, so that's all for. Oh, hang on, before we go, James, what's on the website coming up? What have we got planned? Okay, coming up, what we've got planned? Well, we've got. Um, uh, a couple of decade in films, uh, so we've got Owen's 1973, Owen's favourite films of 1973 coming up, my favourite films of 1963 coming up. It might be a little bit quiet on the site because I'm going off on holiday for a week, which is also why we're not going to be here next week. Um, we'll be back in a fortnight's time. Um, but yeah. What uh, a fortnight's time? In a fortnight's time, we have got... We're actually doing another triple bill then because it's going to be Father's Day that week. We are doing, as things stand, worst movie fathers. But I don't know if we should maybe have best movie fathers or favourite movie fathers. I don't know. But it's going to be some kind of movie fathers triple bill. OK. Um, thanks for everyone who contributed to this week's podcast. Um, and we will see you in a fortnight with the next one. The Fail Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com and you can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at at failedcritics.